The fourth lesson is from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. God chooses Mary, a virgin, to bear the promised one of Israel. Not only the anointed Messiah, the child Jesus will be the very Son of God. In Mary's response to God, we hear her song of praise glorifying in God's goodness, character, and promises. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you, young woman, and blessed is the fruit of the womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of the Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped with, for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will be called blessed. For he who is mighty and has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He, was filled, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Here ends the fourth reading. So remain standing. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would be given freedom in our midst, in this place, in our hearts. That Jesus would be magnified, enlarged in our vision. That we may see him for who he is and be transformed into his likeness. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary sings. Mary worships. Mary magnifies. Every single one of us, regardless of our faith commitments, magnifies, meaning something in our lives is enlarged compared with everything else. Every single one of us, regardless of our faith commitments, worships, meaning there's something in our lives we ascribe ultimate worth to, orienting our passions, our desires, our resources toward it. It could be career, accomplishment, money, beauty, status, wealth. There is always something in our lives we magnify, enlarge, always something we worship, ascribe ultimate worth to. And whatever it is that we worship changes us. Years ago, I heard an incredible quote that to me captures the truth of this brilliantly. 
It's a quote that I'll dust off every 12 to 18 months because it is a truth that we need to be consistently reoriented to. In a commencement speech given to Kenyon College, the late award-winning novelist David Foster Wallace, who was by no means a man of faith, said this to the graduating class. Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what you worship. And the compelling reason for choosing maybe some sort of God to worship is that pretty much everything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough, never feel like you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And what we worship changes us. It was a theme that was picked up by the New Testament professor Greg Beale in a book entitled, We Become What We Worship. And his premise was this. We will either revere something in the world and be shaped and conform to its patterns and desires, as Wallace illustrated, or we will worship God and be progressively conformed into his likeness. My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary sings perhaps what we could call legitimately the first Christmas carol. And as she sings, worship magnifies, she invites us to sing, worship, magnify along with her, that we might be progressively conformed to the likeness of the one that she worships. But this Christmas carol doesn't simply drop down from the heavens, it arises out of a particular context, a context that stirs her to worship, a context that will stir us to worship. So what context stirs Mary to worship? Well, we might say it's it's easy to see what stirs Mary to worship. She has an encounter with an angel who speaks to her of a child, son of the living God, a king who will reign forever. If I had such an encounter with the living God, I'd probably worship as well. But no, no. This encounter with the angel does not lead her to worship. It leads her to run. As Luke puts it, she arose and went with haste. And her haste is likely a combination of what she's running from and what she's running to. Because let's be clear, she's running away. And who can blame her, right? She's pregnant out of wedlock. In her culture, fornication, a capital offense. Who can you trust to tell Who's going to believe you? Virgin birth? Come on now. And we know when her fiancé, Joseph, hears the news, he comes to the most logical conclusion. I know I didn't do it. 
would have remembered that, he decides to divorce her quietly. She isn't moved to worship by the angel's announcement. She's moved to run. I think that might indicate some conflicted trust in Mary. Oh yes, I trust that God can begin life in my womb, but will he protect me from the social stigma? Will he guard my relationship with the man I love? She runs. I trust that nothing is impossible with God, and yet I don't quite live as if it's fully true. I suspect we could all resonate with Mary on that point. We might trust that God knows our needs and will care for us as he does the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, and yet we're still racked with fear, anxiety, worry. We may trust that God and Jesus loves us with an everlasting love, and yet we compromise ourselves to win the love and approval of others, and we're crushed when we don't find it. We may trust that God and Jesus forgives us of all of our sin, and yet we still feel that weight of guilt, of shame, of condemnation. Like Mary, we say, I believe, and yet I don't live as if it's fully true. She runs. But Mary's not simply running away out of a lack of trust. She's running to deeper trust. In her running, she's saying, Lord, I believe, yet help my unbelief. How so? Well, the words of the angel would have been echoing in her mind. Your barren relative Elizabeth has conceived in her old age. She runs to Elizabeth. She runs to what will confirm her trust, deepen her faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Mary arrives at the home. She cries out, Elizabeth! And as soon as the greeting falls upon her aunt's ears, her child in her womb leaps for joy. And before Mary can explain her visit's purpose, her disturbing encounter, ask the burning question on her heart, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, shouts out, You're blessed, Mary. Your child is blessed. And who am I that the mother of my God should come to me? At some level, this encounter would have been as surprising and earth-shattering as her encounter with the angel. Because here is her older aunt, descendant of the high priest Aaron, wife to a priest of the living God, knowing what has happened before she's ever able to utter it. Who am I that the mother of my God should come to me? And in that moment of encounter, the penny drops, head and heart become one. What she touched, she now tastes. What she trusted little, she now trusts much. And she's moved to worship. In our radically individualistic culture that has led to a damaging me and Jesus spirituality, Mary's experience stands in stark contrast, revealing that it is the work of the Spirit in community that brings us to a deeper trust, that brings us to life-changing worship. In the midst of the pandemic, I, like many of you, was pretty low. 
It was the most difficult season of my life as a pastor, for many of the things that gave me joy in this work were completely gone. Something needed to change. I got a call one day from another church asking if I would consider being their pastor. Something that I didn't want to do. Leaving a community that I loved in the midst of the pandemic would have run counter to everything that I believed in. Everything in me wanted to say no. And yet I wondered, is God in this ask? I better pray for discernment. His will is more important than mine. So I began to pray. A few weeks later, I was on a call with a leader that we were partnering with in gospel ministry, and this leader had a practice of praying through his day in the morning, and as he was praying for the upcoming meeting with me, the Holy Spirit gave him a vision, a picture of me standing on the front steps of a church, and he began to describe the church, and it was the front steps of our church, a place that he had never been. As I was standing, I was holding out in my hand an open book, and light was coming out of that book. And it reminded me of the phrase that had been etched into the concrete above our front door for decades, holding forth the word of life. In that picture, I sensed God answering my prayer. I have you where I want you for this season. I am not in this ask. In that picture, I was given fresh energy, a new perspective, an invitation to press into that work of holding forth the word of life. And that picture carried me through the rest of the pandemic. It was the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in community. Such a work is going on all around us. A picture, a word a scripture given to you at just the right time to give you God's perspective on the circumstances of your life that opens up what the next step might be. It may be an extension of love and hospitality when you're feeling alone and vulnerable. It may be a listening ear, a gentle touch when you're feeling weighed down by sorrow and grief. It may be the living God seen in song and prayer and word that enlarges, magnifies your vision of him, diminishing your fear, your worry, your anxiety. Before Mary invites us to worship, she invites us into Holy Spirit-shaped community. For it is in such a context that we're brought to deeper faith, brought to life-changing worship. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now what in Mary's song is magnified, enlarged, given greater weight? It is God's holiness, might, and mercy. For Mary sings, holy is his name, holy meaning his nature burns against everything that is wrong with the world, burns against societal ills, burns against the wrong we do to one another. Holy is his name. Mary sings, For he who is mighty has done great things. 
He is holy and must do something about the wrongs of the world. He is mighty and can do something about the wrongs of the world. But his holiness and might are framed by his mercy. He will not treat us as our sins deserve, but with grace, with love, with forgiveness. And in light of his holiness, his might, his mercy, Mary sings of revolution. A God who will bring about a new humanity, a new society, and the dawning of a new creation. Mary sings of a new humanity. She sings, he will scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis speaks of the sin that is common to every single one of us, and that is pride. It's a sin that we loathe to see in other people, but hardly, if ever, recognize it in ourselves. It's a sin that sits under every other sin. It sits under our broken relationships. Where in pride, we just can't admit that we're wrong and move toward reconciliation. It sits under our insatiable consumption, which is ravaging our planet. Not enough to have our needs met. Not enough to have our wants met. We want our wants met in a greater and a flashier way than anyone else around us. It sits under our societal ills of nationalism, sexism, racism, where pride of nation, gender, ethnicity establishes in us a better-than mentality, a superiority that diminishes and excludes. Mary sings of a new humanity. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, a new humanity born of worship, born of God being enlarged, magnified. For in the words of C.S. Lewis, he and us are two things of such a different kind that if we really get into any kind of touch with him, we will in fact be humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of being rid of the pride that has made us restless and unhappy all of our lives. Mary sings of a new humanity. Mary sings of a new society, the dawning of a new creation. The lowly lifted up, the hungry fed, and with the smell coming through the building, we're desiring that now. And Mary herself has been caught up in this revolutionary work of God, this turning upside down of the patterns of the world. For God could have chosen one to bear his son, the daughter of a rich, powerful ruler, the daughter of the high priest, but he's chosen a lowly peasant girl from a backwater town. The powerful have been brought low. The lowly have been lifted up. This is the way of God. has always been the way of God. Throughout scripture, God is constantly choosing the poor, the lowly, the cast aside, the barren, the unloved to fulfill his purposes. Undermining the patterns of our world. Undermining what our world worships. Mary sings of a revolution. And this led Methodist missionary Stanley Jones to say that the Magnificat, Mary's song, is the most revolutionary document in the world. 
it so terrified the Russian czars that they tried outlawing its reading. It had been used in Argentina to call for nonviolent resistance to oppression, that the government of Guatemala banned its recitation in the 1980s. And these oppressive powers were right to be concerned that the worship of such a god would undermine their power and stir up revolution. But a revolution not following the patterns of our world, the patterns of injustice and fear and violence, but a revolution following the patterns of Jesus who in weakness takes on the forces of sin, death, and hell, who in love responds to violence and hate, who at the cross took our sin upon him. In the words of Paul, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He who was rich became poor that we in our poverty might become rich. Mary sings, have a revolution following the patterns of Jesus. And she sings of that revolution, that new humanity, new society, the dawning of a new creation in the past tense. The one who will accomplish this is no bigger than the head of a pin in her womb. Fragile, vulnerable, And yet, because of God's faithfulness, his might, his holiness, his mercy, she sings of that future, future to her, future to us, in the past tense, meaning he will accomplish this. Mary sings, Mary worships, Mary magnifies. And as she does so, she invites us to sing, worship, magnify along with her, that we might be conformed into the likeness of his character. It is a tradition of many this time of year to take in a performance of Handel's Messiah, likely one of the most glorious and enduring pieces of music that have ever been written. Handel, the composer, had a very up-and-down career. He fell in and out of favor with royalty, which meant he fell in and out of money. He was not a wise businessman. He lost a small fortune in the opera business. At the age of 52, he suffered a stroke, causing paralysis in his right side and blurry vision. He wasn't able to perform or conduct, depressed, mired in debt, He gave up on music. We may not have heard of Handel again if he'd not come across a libretto, an operatic text that had been written by Charles Jennings. And in it, he was taken through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and pointed to the hope of his coming again to make everything new. Inspired, Handel began to write. And he composed Messiah in a mere 24 days. His assistants would often hear him weeping over scripture. And when he came to the hallelujah chorus, he was found by an assistant weeping saying, I did think I saw heaven open and beheld the very face of God. After expressing his worshipful response to God's work in Jesus, 
Messiah opened to a standing room only audience. After deeply reflecting on the God who in Jesus brings about a new humanity, a new society, the dawning of a new creation, Handel gave all the proceeds from that opening concert to prisoners, the sick, the infirm. In his worship, he was being progressively conformed into the image of the one he worshipped. Mary sings. Mary worships. Mary magnifies. And as she does so, she invites us to sing, worship, magnify along with her that we might be progressively conformed to the image of the one she worships. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He is Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.